So page 872, Lord's Day number two of the Heidelberg Catechism, questions and answers three, four, and five. I'll read the questions if you'd read along with me the answers tonight. So brothers and sisters, how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us in summary in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And then finally, question five, can you live up to all this perfectly? No, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. You may be seated. You can keep out those questions tonight uh, in your hymnal. And while you're doing that, also just quickly turn with me to Romans. We're going to read just a couple of verses here. Uh, We're going to skip around a bit, but uh, Romans chapter number three. Just read a few verses there this evening as we want to think about uh, the themes that are put before us here, the big ideas uh, from those questions. So the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter number three uh, very famously asks this question, verse number nine. What then? Are we Jews any better off than the Gentiles? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then verse number 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then verse 23, again, another very famous verse from Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then he says this in verse number uh, 20. Uh, 26, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, that was verse 23. Uh, verse 24, and, and are justified, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And all of God's people say to those beautiful words, amen. So our only comforts, as we heard last Sunday night, meaning the thing that we ultimately trust and rely upon, not just in this life, but for our life that is to come. Our only comfort is Jesus Christ. Amen? That was question one that we saw last Sunday night from our Heidelberg Catechism. Q&A one is one of those beautiful questions and answers. Really encourage all of us to take that to heart, to memorize that question and answer. We may, some of us have memorized it in older versions, but try to memorize that one. Uh, So when I come to the hospital bed, someday, uh, and I ask you, what is your only comfort in life and in death? You may not be able to recite every single word, perhaps mentally you may not be there, or physically may not be there, uh, but you'll know, you'll know that Jesus Christ is your only comfort in life and in death. An old pastor uh, once told me 
at the end of his 30 years of being a pastor that uh, the biggest regrets that he had, uh, the, or the biggest sorrow really, it wasn't a regret that he had, but the biggest sorrow that he had as a pastor was that he would go to people on their deathbed and he would ask them, what are you trusting in? What is your only comfort in life and in death? What are you relying upon? And people would respond by saying things like, you know, I was a good person. Uh, I gave 10% to church, 5% perhaps to a Christian school. I gave to a missionary, uh, but I was a good person. And so at the end of his ministry, at least, uh, he was sorrowful that after all he had done uh, to preach the glorious things that we all say we believe, people still uh, didn't quite get it. So I want to encourage us, encourage you, exhort you as your pastor to uh, memorize Q&A number one, that our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong body, soul to Jesus Christ. Amen? So Jesus Christ. Now, how do we come to know that? How do we come to know that? Better yet, how do we come to know him? It's not just a that, not just an it, not just a thing that we want to know. Uh, how do we know him? How do we come to know that Jesus is our only comfort so that we can live with joy and we can also die with joy? As Paul reminds us, uh, uh, to live is Christ, to die is gain. How can we live like that? That was question number two that we saw last Sunday night. And the first part of that question, too, is that we need to know how great my, our, sin and misery are. To know that you belong to Jesus and to live in joy and to die in joy. You need to know, first, how great my sin and misery are. But who wants to know that? Who wants to know that? Misery. Who wants to know that? I mean, we, don't we, we live our whole life here in, I mean, here we are in North County, San Diego, and we're emblematic of the rest of our culture and society and probably most of the world that, uh, that is so affluent as we are. Uh, we don't want to know that, and we live our lives trying to avoid that, our misery. We avoid our past mistakes that have led us to today. We don't want to talk about them. We don't want to acknowledge them. We want to hide those things. We cope with those things that we've done in the past. Uh, we cover over our inner feelings with meds, with alcohol, with online personas, fake smiles. I mean, you don't even have to go online to do this. You can, we all do it ourselves, don't we? Fake smiles. How, how are things going? How are you doing? How are you feeling? How's life been going? And we, and we fake it. We fake it because we don't want to acknowledge really what's going on deep down inside. One of Johnny Cash's oldest songs uh, is called Home of the Blues, and he said, misery loves company. Misery loves company in the home of the blues. But it's okay. It's okay for us to be miserable, to know that we are miserable offenders as we prayed this morning. It's okay. I want to explain that tonight, why it's okay for us to be miserable now, uh, this word here, just give you a little sense of the, what the catechism is trying to get us to say uh, and understand is uh, uh, this word for misery. The, uh, the German word here used for misery, elend, is related to another German word, uh, Ausland, which means a foreign land. To be miserable, according to the Heidelberg Catechism, the original authors, uh, is to be like a foreigner in a land that's not your own. Our president is down at the border today. You probably saw that in the news. Maybe you heard about that. Uh, and so the sense and, the, and the, uh, the, the reality of people who migrate to our country, 
yes, they come here for all the opportunities and all the, all the benefits, but they're still in Atlanta. It's not their own. That's what it means to be miserable. It's to be outside of the place that you truly belong. For whatever reason. Of course, spiritually, it means that we're in misery. Or spiritually, that we are miserable. We, are, we have a condition of being separated from God. He's like our true home. But yet we're separated from him. And so we feel that sense of misery deep down inside of us. Now, the, trans, the author has translated it later on into Latin, so it could be spread out not just in a little German region, but all across Europe. And even today, the Hatterite Catechism is translated in, in many, many, many languages, hundreds of languages, basically across the whole world, uh, the Catechism is available. But at least in Latin, it was, uh, that, that word for misery is miseria. It's the opposite of another Latin term uh, that some of us who, who speak Espanol know, misericordia, which means mercy. Misery is the opposite of mercy. It, to be miserable, then, is to be in need of mercy. To be in need of mercy. To be in need of God to come to us who are like foreigners in a land that's not our own, meaning in our sins. For God to come to us and to show us mercy, to bring us back home, to bring us back to him. We've got to know that. For you and I to know that Jesus is the only thing that we ultimately rely upon in this life and the life to come, we've got to know that we need him, that we need his mercy, that we need him to bring us back to God uh, as, not as strangers, but as friends. And so it's okay to be miserable. That's what I mean by that. It's okay to be miserable, to know that outside of Jesus, you're homeless. You're a foreigner in a land that's not yours. You're, you are in need of mercy. It's not just okay. It's actually necessary. You know that? It's necessary to know this stuff. If you don't know that you're in need of mercy, how will you ever know where you're going to have to find it? You'd be like a person uh, at your front door. You hear a knock. Danny Miranda shows up in his old, in his old uh, uniform. It's like, Larry, you got a fire behind you. Your house is on fire. You're like, what are you talking about, man? Go home. To not know your sin and misery is to be like a person at the front door being told by a fireman that your house is on fire and to not acknowledge it. To not know the danger that you're in. If you don't know that, how can you, how can you know what it means to be, to be freed, right? To be saved, literally. To be helped. So it's okay for us to be miserable we need to know this. We need to know this. So how do we come to know this? That's what our catechism begins by saying tonight. Question and answer number three. We'll look at Romans as well. Uh, how do you come to know your misery? What's the source of coming to grips with your misery that you are alienated from God in need of his mercy? And the answer is one of the shortest and simplest in the whole catechism. The law of God tells me. For, for those of us with our kids, we've tried to memorize a lot of the Hatterberg Catechism and uh, sometimes the questions are longer than the answers. This is not the easiest catechism to memorize, but we, we plow through with our kids. We do the best we can. This is one of the easier ones. How do, you know your, how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. Well, why in the law, though? Why do we, have to, or why do we learn this in the law? Because our God, who is a righteous God, meaning that he's upright in all that he is and all that he does, he reveals that aspect of who he is as righteous, as upright, especially in the law. 
If you turn over to Romans chapter 7, uh, verse number 12, the apostle, uh, in the middle of a, of a very lengthy argument, says this, though, about the law. Notice verse number 12, Romans chapter 7. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and, in fact, good. The law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law reflects who God is. God is holy, God is righteous, God is good. It reflects who he is. And that's why when we read there from Romans chapter 3, verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Why? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. God gave the law to reveal sin. To show how great he is and how low we are. How upright he is, how fallen you and I are. That's why, the, why God gave the law. In fact, Paul goes on to say in Romans 7 at verse number 7, uh, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And Paul was saying that, reflecting uh, as a Jewish rabbi, one of the specialists in the law, who they all thought that they were holy, righteous, and good. But if it was not for the law, I would have not, not have known that I was a sinner. That's how high they thought of themselves. But God in his law humbled him and crushed him. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. Now there's knowing something. Then there's really, really knowing something, right? Or sometimes we say, you know, you know, listen to me. But we say it with emphasis. We look down our glasses or down our noses at our kids. Listen to me, right? Pay attention. In the same way, to know someone or to know something isn't the same as knowing them, right? One, one, one can just be, you know, I know who a person is. I see their face. I might know where they live, you know, this, this and that. But do I really know that person deep down inside? Are they a friend? Are they an acquaintance? Daxon looked down at his ankle a couple weeks ago, and there wasn't a bruise. There wasn't a bruise. It really wasn't even that swollen, his ankle. But you can put an ankle that, you know something's wrong, you can put it under an x-ray, but the x-ray can come back and say, well, there's no fractures, there's no breaks. But then you can go and get a scan, a CAT scan, and you can see not just the hardness of bones, but you can see soft tissue, you can see there's a sprained ligament. Sometimes you can even, or you can see, you can even see torn ligaments. So it's one thing to know that something is wrong, but another thing to know exactly what is wrong. And deep down inside, through a scan, to know that there's a torn or a sprained ligament there that's causing you pain, even though you don't see it on the surface. Deep down inside, it's there. And so you might hear the words, the out outward words, and our kids hear these words, and we hear these words too. You shall not steal. You hear those words, kids, every Sunday? You shall not steal. And you might say to yourself, check that one off. I'm good on that one. I've kept that commandment. I've never walked into the grocery store with my mom or dad. I've never gone into a department store with my mom or dad. I've never gone anywhere and walked out with something that didn't belong to me. I'm good on that one kept the law. I haven't stolen. But deep down inside, don't you want your, your neighbor's 2022 
Jeep Grand Cherokee? Don't you want that shiny new thing that your friend has at school, your teammate has? Don't you want that brand new pool in your backyard with glistening water, just looking amazing, refreshing to dive into? Or didn't you watch a movie on your device that was from a Russian hacked website? That you didn't pay for a ticket? That's why Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 7, the law is spiritual, meaning like a CAT scan, the law of God can penetrate deep down inside of us, our, what we call our affections, the things that we desire, the things that we internally love, the things that we want and desire in a, in a, in a, in a sinful way. We covet those things. The law of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intents of our hearts. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me, and not just the law on bare pages, in one ear, out the other, the law of God, as it requires of us what the next question asks. What does God's law require of us? Q&A 4. The law is a source from which we learn that we have misery, that state of alienation between uh, our home in God and where we are in this land of misery, this place of miserableness, that we need to be brought back home to him. The law of God teaches us that. We know the law, don't we? You shall have no other gods before me. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not covet. But what do those commandments, those ten commandments, actually teach us? How do they act like a cat scan deep into our hearts? How does that bring us to know our misery? And so Q&A 4 is all about the substance of the law. So you have the source of it, Q&A 3, the substance of it, Q&A 4. What does God's law require of us? And the answer there is uh, just a quotation from Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, that very strict party of the Jewish people of God. And you see that there. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. That's Deuteronomy 6, verse number 5. And there's a second commandment that's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And on those two commands depend or hang all the law and the prophets. So what do you notice about Jesus' answer there? In Matthew 22. What's at the heart of the matter here? Of what does God's law require of us? Again, we can hear the commandments. We can sit under them like an x-ray and maybe not perhaps see deep down inside or as deep as we need to be, uh, as, as we need to see. What's the heart of the matter according to Jesus? What does God's law actually require of us? He requires of us what? Love. Love. I said God is righteous. The law reflects his righteousness. God's also love. As the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one God in three eternal, co-eternal, co-essential, meaning that are all divine, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he, they, the one God in three persons, exists in perfect love for all of eternity. God is love, as the Bible says over and over and over again. And the first laws that he gave to our first parents, Adam and Eve, 
were meant to show Adam how to love the God who made him his creator. Of course, he failed and he sinned. But yet all throughout the Old Testament, we read of God's laws that are meant to teach love, love of God, love of neighbor. Kids, take a wild guess at how many laws there are in the Old Testament. How many commandments in the Old Testament? There's the Ten Commandments. Okay, that, 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 that isn't the answer. How many more commandments are there in the Old Testament? Do you know? If I was to give you like a jar and I put a bunch of, put a bunch of marbles inside there and I asked you, you know, take a guess at how many marbles are in that jar and the winner would get like, I don't know, $25 gift certificate. What would you answer? How many laws and commands in the Old Testament? Sadie, what'd you say? How many? 200? 569? We're getting there. We're getting there. 613. It's a weird number, isn't it? 613 commands in the Old Testament laws. So Genesis through, through Deuteronomy. 613 commandments. The mitzvot of the Old Testament, the command. Now, all of those are summarized in the Ten Commandments. So in some way or another, all 613 are about those ten. And those ten are summarized here by Jesus, quoting the Old Testament, Moses, into two, right? God, love God, love neighbor. And, although, and, and so all those 613, down into ten, down into two, in fact, they're all, they're all about one thing, aren't they? To love. Galatians 5.14, Paul says the whole law is about one thing, about one word, love. So summarizes it. So you can see why just knowing the Ten Commandments or knowing the Two Commandments or knowing even the One Commandment, just knowing, even knowing the number of the, of the 613, maybe you can find a Bible dictionary, you can write them all out. Knowing them isn't the same as knowing them. Having them in front of you isn't the same thing as undergoing what they really teach us inside. The heart of the matter is to love. To love. So how do I know the greatness of my sin and misery so that I can know Jesus and live in joy? We've got to know deep down inside what God actually requires of us in all of his commandments, which is to love. And that's a hard thing, to love. To love God more than yourself, to love someone else more than or equal to yourself. Every one of us tonight knows how hard this is. We all know how selfish we are. We all know how we desire other things. We all know deep and inside just how much, you know, we serve ourselves more than God. You know this. So can you live up to all this to love God and neighbor? neighbor? Can you live, live up to all this perfectly? Why does that answer, uh, that, that question, excuse me, why does that question number five say, can you live up to all this perfectly? Perfectly. Because God is perfect. God is righteous and his laws are righteous. God is holy, his laws are holy. God is good, the, the laws of God are good. God is perfect in every way whatsoever, in every way you can imagine, he is perfect. One medieval writer, St. Anselm of Canterbury, 
has a very famous line in one of his writings where he's praying to God and he says, we believe that you are that than which nothing greater can be conceived. That's perfection. God is that than which, above which, nothing greater can be conceived. Sometimes it's called the ontological argument for God's existence, but it was a prayer to God. There's nothing greater than God. He's God. He's perfect. So can you live into all these commandments perfectly? Because God reveals in these laws his own perfection of love. What's the answer to that? What's that that little simple word that we give the answer to? No, right? Nine in German. Nine. It says nine. No. Okay? So back to Romans 3. Paul expresses here, Romans 3, verse 9 and following, that everyone, both Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, everyone has broken God's commandments. Everyone has not loved God perfectly. Everyone has not loved neighbor as self perfectly. Everyone's broken the commandments. And therefore, everyone, every human being, all flesh, literally is what he says, are therefore miserable in need of the mercy of God. And so he asked there, uh, verses 1 and 2, just above where we read, uh, what advantage did it, uh, was it for the Jews that they had over the Gentiles? And, and Paul says, in, uh, in part, God entrusted the Jews with his word. That's one, verses 1 and 2. But was the mere stewardship of holding the laws, actually having the scrolls that revealed the laws of God, was that enough to automatically make them a righteous people? That's why he asked that question that I read, verse number 9, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that, both, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then there, then there comes that litany, beginning at verse number 10, that litany of hard sayings from the Old Testament, humbling quotations from the Old Testament. No one's righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God, no one is good, Every mouth can maybe stop. The whole world's accountable to God. Children, do you know how many people all means there? The whole world or all the world might be held accountable to God. Do you know how many people exist in the world today, kids? I think new, and around New Year's it sort of tipped over into a, a new big number. Do, do you know how many? Almost 8 billion, right? I mean, maybe by now it is, but... Like 7.9 billion, I think it was like a New Year's Day. It tipped over to 7.9 billion people. That's what the B, kids, the B, billion on the earth. That's a seven, that's a nine, and then what is that, eight zeros after that? Seven, nine, eight zeros. That's, that, that's a lot. Kids, do you know how many people have lived on the face of the planet Earth, according to scientists? I'm not sure if this is exactly correct, but how many people have, have, have ever lived in all of human history, according to the best estimates, the best science? There's 7.9 right now, right? But how many people in the whole history will have, have lived and have existed? Again, there's a big jar of marbles I have here, imagine. A lot of numbers in there, a lot of, lot of marbles. How many think are in there? 20 billion. You're getting close. Getting close. Getting hotter. According to one website, 117 billion human beings have lived on the face of the planet throughout all human history. How many of them, kids? Let's imagine that number's correct. 117 billion, 7.9 billion just right now. How many of those people were in a state of misery and miserable? 
How many? So if there is, if there is, if, let's say there are 117 billion people that have actually lived, exactly that very number, how many of those people were sinners? So 116 billion. What would that be? I don't know. 999 million, 999, right? 116 with a bunch of nines after it. That's how many people have been sinners. Of course, of Jesus, Jesus our Lord accepted. All. That's why Romans 3, verse 23, so important. All have sinned. The strictest Pharisee, I mean, we, Moses himself on Mount Sinai, all have sinned. All the way down to the lowest of the low. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if anyone says otherwise, John the Apostle says that they are deceived without the truth. They make God a liar. They don't have the word of God in them. So what does it mean that you and I cannot live up to God's requirement of love perfectly? And there's this line in our catechism that is one of the most striking lines in the catechism, summarizing for us a lot of these verses when it says, I am inclined by nature. Meaning, as I stand as a human being made in God's image, but a sinner, as I am by nature, just who I am, right? This is who I, who I was as I was born. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. God is our life. God, God gave us life as a human race. He gave us life so that we would live with him and love him and be loved by him. And he made us as a race together as his image bearers to love him and to love one another. And together, the one another, to love him collectively, not just individually, but collectively. But we've all sinned. We've all sinned as a human race. We are all alienated. We're estranged from God, vertically, and we're also estranged from one another. We're moving a fence at our house. I mean, we, we have fences. There's estrangement that exists deep down inside, in our own hearts. Just to move a fence on a property, five feet. Why? Well, you know, we've got to keep the bad guys out. Keep them away from us, right? We, we all have that sense that we are estranged from each other as human beings, especially from God, we're estranged. And we feel that every day. It's been that way since the serpent deceived Adam and Eve. Eve was deceived, Adam then was tempted in that ancient garden. It's been that way since Cain killed his own brother, Abel. Adam and Eve estranged themselves from God. Cain and Abel show us that we are estranged from each other as human beings. We talk, we talk about uh, every administration in our country, uh, the first family. Uh, whenever there's a new occupant in the White House, we talk about the scandals, perhaps, of that particular president, maybe, maybe his, uh, his family and so forth. Right? We're taken up by that. The world's captivated today by the, the royal family's drama. It's all over the news. These are just 
faint vestiges, faint reflections of humanity's first family. I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Because what was said then of an ancient human race can still be said today. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, Genesis 6, verse 5, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor because the prophet's words are still true today. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or sick. Who can understand it? I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor because Paul never spoke such accurate words. Romans 7 verse 24. Wretched man that I am. And that's Paul, a former Pharisee. I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor because I am opposed to the law of love. According to Paul, Romans chapter 8, verse number 7, where he's summarizing a lot of what he's told us in chapter 7, some of those ver- in chapter 3, some of those verses that we, we looked at, but in chapter 8, verse 7, listen to these words. Why do we say that I'm inclined by nature to hate God and neighbor? For the mind that is set on the flesh, meaning our, just our, our fallenness, our sinfulness. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. And then Paul summarizes like this. Verse, Romans 8, verse 7. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. If I don't know that I am by, by myself, apart from the, the grace of God, if I don't know that I can't please God apart from him, how will I ever know how I can please him and be brought back into fellowship with him? We've got to know this. And all of this is, is the reason why the Son of God came to us, that we celebrated on Christmas. We are in misery. We are alienated. We are foreigners to God. We are miserable. We are in need of the mercy and the mercies of God. And so it's okay for us as believers tonight to be miserable because that means that we are acknowledging and we are accepting God's mercy to us in Jesus Christ. Acknowledge your misery. Acknowledge your miserableness. Acknowledge your separation, your alienation from God, apart from Christ, and you'll come to know what it means to be accepted back into his amazing mercy. Amen.